Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. In 1994, Yale literary critic Harold Bloom created a massive list of the works he considered the standards of Western literature, beginning with the Bible. In 2016, two overly educated autodidacts, one a professional, the other an interested layman, set out to read every book on the list. Thus was born The Cannonball, a podcast attempt to read every book in Bloom's list and along the way explore the whole notion of a canon to begin with. From Dante's Inferno to Ibsen's Dollhouse, from Don Quixote's Extremadura to Elizabeth Bennet's Hertfordshire, join Daniel and Claude as they provide critical commentary, analysis, and from-the-gut personal reactions for all of the books you are too lazy or hungover to read in undergrad. That's the Cannonball. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. If country borders and grids can fascinate you, and state names intrigue you, if atlases, globes, city plans, subway maps, and of course, world maps are your thing, if you can name the capital city of Namibia, and if you get giddy about flags, you are in the right place. This is Map Corner, a podcast about the love of maps brought to you by Royfield Brown and Claire Asprey. Now, on with the show. Hello and welcome to Map Corner. I am Royfield Brown, who is Waddle Custom Exchanges, which puts me in Oakland. Well, of course, you knew that, didn't you, Claire? (laughs) I like that three-word mixture. Of course, that voice on the other end of the podcast is our Claire Asprey, who is... Where are you today, Claire? Oh, same place as usual, uh, Clapham, Bedfordshire. Yay! Uh, so that is in um, just about the middle of nice green old England, just north of London, if you're trying to find it on a map. Uh, Claire Asprey is the brains behind this podcast. She's the one with the intellectual heft to keep this whole ship afloat, if I'm not mixing my metaphors. And we'll explain the reasons why we're big in a park, Claire, a little bit later. But folks, this is Map Corner, the podcast dedicated to the love of maps and to all things cartophilic. So if Peter's is your projection, you're in the right place. Now, this month, we just follow up on stuff that we talked about last month, basically. Um, it's that type of show. Uh, slightly odds and sods and people just referring to stuff. And folks, the lifeblood of any podcast, well, I suppose it's just you've got to put out some audio. That's fundamentally the lifeblood. But one thing that actually helps us get new listeners is uh, you writing reviews 
on Apple iTunes, you the listener, that is. And uh, last month, we said we'd give a roll call of people that have given us reviews in the last month. So, Claire, why don't you start us with our first reviewer? Let's big them up. Okay, I like this one. This is uh, from Canada, G9651, who is about to big me up. Uh, And G9651 says, Royfield Brown is a smart fellow. That's bigging you up, Royfield. When selecting a new employee or choosing a work for a colleague, most people choose someone slightly less intelligent and less competent than themselves. But not Royfield. He goes the other way and chooses to work with Claire Asprey. Yay! <laughs> this is an intelligent and interesting podcast produced by witty and intelligent people. If you like maps, then this podcast is for you. If you don't like maps, then I have little hope for your eternal soul. That gets quite deep. Mm. And uh, yeah, uh, thank you for... It's not even a backhanded compliment. That's fundamentally just a diss for me, really. Well, no, he says you're smart and we're both witty and intelligent. So, you know, we both come off well. But you just come off weller, though. Better. Anyway, uh, thank you for your five-star review, cheeky fucker. Uh, And from Germany, we have um, Ethelyed, the linguist. Uh, From the UK, we have Mike Pear, who is actually our old friend Mike Pear, man. Uh, From Australia, we have Dico101. From the US, we have Subway Mark. From the United Kingdom, we have Mansk. And also in the United States, Sally D. Sally. Also in the land which I am temporarily calling home, the United States of America, that is, we have Don't Break the Internet, who actually gave us two out of five stars and went on to say, um, just paraphrasing now, uh, great, great podcast. Have the audio quality is not served by the fact that it sounds like it's uh, been sent in down a phone. Now, we have a different audio system which we're experimenting with uh, this month. So hopefully don't break the internet your audio quality has improved and lastly claire uh from the us news on news on two um and uh, oh new song two that makes more sense um and uh, it says already a fan of royfields brown other podcasts but only to find out he does one on maps i've been a geography and map nut since i was young and to have an entire podcast dedicated to it is amazing royfield and claire do a terrific job exploring and discussing the world of cartography in a conversational format while they're tying the impact and importance of maps to the world we live in keep up the good work which we intend to do and if you want to get a roll call, a shout out on a roll call, I should say, in a forthcoming episode, why don't you go into Apple Podcasts and write us a review? Now, we know there are many other podcasting services that allow you to write reviews. Uh, iTunes is the industry standard, so you'll get more listeners if you put reviews there. If you do use another system, why don't you go onto mapcorner.space and um, tell us that you've written a review wherever the heck it is. We'll go and have a look and we'll include you on a roll call in a future episode. We don't want to forget you just because you use Pocket Casts or, or some other system or Stitcher or something or another. But you'll have to go that extra mile, folks, I'm afraid, and tell us that you've written us that review. Uh, who have we got calls from this week? So this month we have got calls from Jan following up on uh, uh, Musa Geddon. Uh, last uh, last month we have a call from Richard Washer and uh, we also have a call from Guy Smith who talks us through his first map that he made uh, which is just a fantastic snapshot of English rural life mm. and you can join uh, your fellow listeners by getting on the show uh, by going on to map 
corner.space and hitting the speak pipe tab, which I believe is over on the right. Um, that's the way that you get your voice, your musings, your observations about the world of cartography, travel and maps onto uh, this podcast. So it's mapcorner.space, funny URL, click speak pipe. You can use your phone, your tablet, your iPad, whatever gets you gets your question or your musings over to us. Now, first, uh, we always start the show with an interview. Generally, it's me, but not always. Here is our Claire speaking to Michael Permain, who put some flesh onto the Two Degrees West issue, which we talked about. Was that last month, Claire? It was, yeah. There you go. Told you. This is a follow-up to last month's episode. Here is Claire. So I've got Michael Pearman with me, who has sent some really interesting information into the show, which we've mentioned before about how the uh, spine of the UK is the two degrees west meridian. And uh, thank you for joining us, Michael. You're very welcome, Claire. Nice to speak to you. I was really uh, interested in the thing that you sent us, which talks about how we got the, the shape of the UK, really. But more especially, you have a personal connection to that line of the spine, don't you? Yes, I mean, it, it's, it's all related to Two Degrees West, which um, I first stumbled upon when we were doing a local history walk. And someone that was leading the walk said, oh, this is the line of Two Degrees West. And I wasn't particularly paying a lot of attention, but I thought, oh, well, that's something I'll look into. So I thought, oh, well, I'll, I'll go and find out about it. And then I found this book by Nicholas Crane, who is the guy who's on TV show uh, Coast and various other things called Two Degrees West. So the, most of my information is from him. But I found out how important Two Degrees West was. It, it basically started from when uh, the Greenwich Meridian in 1884, they, it was a line and everyone agreed that was there. But for the next 50 years, all the British mappers hadn't really got their act together, so every every county was uh, dealing with things in a different way, and they hadn't really got a, a, a countrywide system together. So in 1935, seven men were charged with preparing a blueprint for the future of Britain, Britain's maps, and Sir John Davidson was the guy that they uh, put in charge of this, and they thought, right, should we start with Greenwich Meridian? because that is the sort of the line that everyone knows. But that is right on the right-hand side of the country, if, if people can picture our map north-south. And also, it's slightly curved. So the only line that is actually straight up the, up the country is the one that is two degrees west, and that is the, the central meridian. Uh, and therefore, that was the one that they chose to be the zero zero on everyone's OS map. Um, so whenever you pick up a map, this is two degrees west is the, the straight up and down line. And our local relationship to it, which Claire referred to, is because that actually runs between us and our neighbours. So when we were passing this line and he said, oh, this is two degrees west, that is actually the line between, well, what you could call the Western Hemisphere and the Eastern Hemisphere. But basically that is the central meridian, the zero zero line uh, that all the OS maps refer to. And that was really where I started looking into it. Wow. And I think what's really called out to me in some ways on this is that 
1884 seems quite recent if I'm if I'm thinking about it for the Ooh. Greenwich Meridian because I do, I, th- I think about the Greenwich Meridian and I'm thinking about I don't know like 16th 17th century kind of quite early royal society type scientists yeah. I'm thinking of men in wigs basically and exactly. you know and and, and I suppose it, it makes me think well that that's what were OS doing because they existed before. We had an ordnance service. Uh, I don't know what the original date of ordnance survey is. I should have looked this up. But um, I would imagine that they've been working for you know hundreds of years, because at the end of the day, it's a military basis for that organisation, right? So um, so what, what have they been doing before then? How have they managed to map the country without having agreed on a sort of starting point? Yeah, no, no, I agree with you. Obviously, it goes back to, I think it was uh, 1569 when uh, Mercator did his original map, which everyone knows how it looks. And that was really when the end of the 1800s, after John Harrison had uh, done his clock so that people could actually cross the seas and still understand and, and still be based on the same time. But that took those few hundred years until 1884 when everyone met in Washington, D.C. and voted that Greenwich Meridian should be the, the starting point. But from 1884 through till 1935, it, yeah, it was just chaos, really. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, they, they started to get their act together and they decided on two degrees west. But your house existed a long time before two degrees west was decided as a central indeed, meridian. Indeed, indeed, yeah. Ours uh, house um, dates from the late 1500s, so uh, the first owner of our house was Queen Elizabeth I. Um, that sounds very because, posh. Uh, it does, doesn't it, yeah, but it was only because um, we were part of the Manor of Bradford and the Manor of Bradford came under the crown at that stage. Um, and then it, after about 50 years or so, um, the crown ran out of money and they started selling it to individuals. So after that, our house was in uh, individual ownership, but it was always owned by some rich people elsewhere, and it was just people farmed it from about 1600 through till 1940-ish, and people finally gave up and thought, oh, we can't do this anymore. So it just went uh, back to nature for 30 or 40 years until somebody bought it off Yorkshire Water, and Yorkshire Water owned most of the farms around here because we're surrounded by about six reservoirs so Yorkshire Water bought all of the the farms around here mainly so that they didn't pollute the local reservoirs. The person we bought the the farm off which was, his name was Eric and he was the only person ever to be born in the Bronte Parsonage uh, because all the Bronte sisters, they only lived there, they were never born there and he bought it for £1,000 off Yorkshire Water and converted it from a really drafty old farmhouse and barn into a, a slightly more modern <laughs> drafty house. Um, and, um, yeah, so, yeah, we've, it's been around here for, for many years. So do you want to describe, uh, well, obviously, depending on how private you want to keep it, the, the kind of general location of where you are so people can look you up? Yeah, OK, well, um, we're about sort of a thousand feet up on what's called the Bronte Moors. Uh, they're not actually called that, but that's what everyone knows them as. So we're in the Worth Valley looking down over Haworth, where the, the Brontes were from. And we're on the Pennine Way, and as you go up the Pennine 
beyond us, there's one more house, and then you come to what's known as Wuthering Heights. That's not its real name. It's an old farmhouse called Top Withens, but it is the location where everyone says that's where Emily Bronte was imagining Wuthering Heights to be. So do you get a lot of literary tourists cross your path? Uh, absolutely. And many uh, Japanese, because they, the Japanese do it as part of their curriculum, so all the signs are also in Japanese. Um, but yeah, when if you're gardening out on a summer's day, every few, well, maybe every 30 seconds, there's another few heads bobbing past, all going up to Wuthering Heights, yeah. And is that along the Pennine? Because how do you separate that from the people who are on the Pennine Way? Because that's obviously a fairly popular walking route as well. Um, well, it's, well it's, it's both. I mean, you, as they go past, some of them are runners, some of them are, are just long-distance walkers, some of them are, are just coming up from Howarth up to Wuthering Heights. But within this week, last Sunday, we had there was a fell run that came up past us. Uh, it's, it's called Stanbury Splash. They do a run It's about seven miles. Um, it's not quite as interesting as the one they have on uh, New Year's Eve, which is Old Lang Syne, where most of them are in uh, fancy dress. And that's quite nice to be sitting sitting in a nice warm lounge <laughs> with a cup of coffee, seeing all these people freezing going past in fancy dress on New Year's Eve. You're not tempted um, to join in then? Uh, never, no, no, no. But the, the Brownleys, Alice Brownlee and Johnny Brownlee, they, they, they always used to do it. They, they stopped a couple of years ago, but they both won it quite a few years. Um, and then at the moment, there's a race going on called the Spine Race, which goes on every year where they do the full length of uh, the Pennine Way, 260-odd miles. Uh, they started Sunday morning, so we've just been looking online, and the winners or the leaders are just coming to the end of it, so they've spent about four and a half days. So the, the people who do it fastest are doing it in sort of four or five days, the whole 260 miles. They only have a couple of hours sleep a night, which is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. So for the benefit of our overseas listeners, do you want to talk about what the Pennine Way is? Pennine Way, yes. That goes back to the earliest time when people were looking for the right to roam over the countryside and the right to use all sorts of paths that were originally just under private ownership. Um, and it so it probably goes back to the 1960s, and eventually they got the right to walk this path, and it was the, one of the very earliest um, areas where people could just walk in anywhere they wanted, and, and they had certain rights, and it, it ended up much later on as a, a right to roam over the countryside, which is brilliant. Um, so the Pennine Way was one that goes from the middle of England, or the slightly North Midlands, maybe Derbyshire, uh, goes all the way up through the middle of the country along the Pennine, so over the, the, the highest point, so two or 3,000 feet, some of the most inhospitable places, which is why you've got to feel so sorry for the runners at the moment, up to the, the border of Scotland. Um, so it's, it's about 260 miles, but it's, it was one of the first real important footpaths in the country um, so whilst there's lots of others that have, have taken that and run with it all over the place, this was one of the first ones. Mm-hmm. And so is the Pennine Way like an original for the very ancient walking no, route? No, it's quite Because I, I sort of assumed that just in the same way as like the, um, 
the Ridgeway is no, across the no, south of the country. No, 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 the Romans were not that crazy. <laughs> yeah, well, now you, they'll come to describe the terrain. It makes me think, now, why would anyone have chosen that route? Absolutely. No, 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 no. There's no way that the Romans would have done that because they, they liked long, flat, straight routes. And so all the, the Wattling Way, Foss Way, all of yeah. those, no, no, it's nothing like that. It just happens to be a really good place that walkers like to go. So in, in, in the summer and in decent weather, it's the perfect way you can walk along the top, the spine of the country, and look down in either direction. Um, uh, and, it, and it goes, as I say, from the middle of the country up to the Scottish border for sort of 260-odd miles. And the views but, are know, phenomenal. It, it was invented, it was an invented route, but it was on a route that people were, were walking and they were being stopped to by gamekeepers and other people saying this is private land. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they took a stand. Uh, I, I, I think, remember, I might be wrong, I think Kinder Scout. Kinder Scout Trespass. In fact, there was a, there was a um, anniversary of that quite recently, ah, I think. Right, okay, mass protest and that sort of, um, it, I, I, I'm sure it was 60s sometime, that they said, no, no, no this is not right, that, that pr- this private land and everyone wants to walk out, out there um, so that's where it started. So no, it's a completely invented thing. It's not a historic thing at all. Well, well that's I'd interesting. Yeah. Whatever that's sixty years old. <laughs> well, yes, but um, it's, yeah, when you compare, there are a number of these very um, quite iconic walking routes in the UK, and yeah. some of them are, you know, very ancient, uh, yeah. and others of them are kind of, I suppose created for the benefit of a, yeah. sort of creating a walking route. So the coast to coast, for example, which goes sort of, you know, east to west across the very north of the country, I'm yeah. guessing that's a comparatively new one that was invented for walkers. Absolutely, and they are all over. I mean, recently I've been doing a couple of walks up towards uh, Lindisfarne and there's, there's various, various routes that are signed as, as pilgrimages or walks, and, and I'm sure everyone's got them all all over the country, or certainly all, all over Britain anyway, and they most of them are fairly recent inventions, but it makes it so much easier as a walker because it's signed and it's on OS maps and it just makes it so much easier. Mm-hmm. So you and could... When you walk, sorry, go on. Sorry, Karen. I was just going to say, when, when you walk up the hill on the Pennine Way from ours, um, you, you reach... A, well, when you get up to what is now called sort of um, Wuthering Heights, you're at a point when you you sit there and you go, oof, and I, that was a nice walk, and looking down over the, the Worth Valley. If you're looking down the, the valley, um, you're at about 54 degrees latitude, something like that. And if you're looking directly east, um, you're looking along what effectively, if you could see into the distance, would be the Baltic coast of Germany and Poland, and then onto the plains of Lithuania and Belarus. So the, the next point where you'd be at the same altitude would be the South Ural Mountains, 2,000 miles away in Russia. Wow. You're not that high, but because everything is so low in between, mm-hmm. you'd be you're looking across, and then if, if you could actually see 2,000 miles away, you, you'd be seeing to Russia. Wow. 
it's really interesting when you when you're in an area where it, there's comparatively you're right the sort of the, the eastern eastern side of the UK is comparatively low I guess. It is, yeah, yeah. And you um, into the Humber estuary and then yeah, uh, yeah. and it's the flatlands of, of oh, Europe. Yeah. Indeed. Well, I say well, I don't live that far from East Anglia, and it uh, I have done my share of driving across to King's Lynn and bits of Norfolk, which you know it's the flatland and open skies. <laughs> So I mean, I suppose you could say that you are you're sort of living in the in the kind of point where the uh, was well, a meridian spine of the country uh, yeah. meets the uh, the spine of the country in the context of the uh, Pennine Way. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. You are spine central. We are indeed, yeah. Because <laughs> we we whilst we are in Yorkshire, um, we only have to walk for half an hour up the hill, and then we're on top of the Pennines, and we're into Lancashire. So. We are definitely on the spine, yeah. And do you have a particular um, side to take in that rivalry between Yorkshire and Lancashire? No, or do you stay no, no. neutral? I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Brummie, so I'm not bothered. I've been up here 40 years, but I'm still a Brummie. So uh, despite the, uh, the friendly rivalry up here, I don't think people are bothered anymore. No, they're quite friendly. Uh-huh. And... Um, so tell us a bit about the, the views that you get, because presumably one of the benefits of being along the Pennines is that, you know, you are pretty much as high as you can possibly be in that whole area. Absolutely. I mean, there's, there's a lot of times, especially in the autumn and spring, when we're looking down on cloud, because, we're, I mean, we're only at 1,000 feet, which isn't that high, and quite often we're up in the clouds and then we drive down out of, away from our house and we're into the sun. But there are some times when, especially, as I say, spring and autumn, when the, it's colder weather and all the cold air sinks into the valley, that we're up in bright sunshine and we're looking down on cloud in the valley and it looks like we're looking down on the sea in the valley. Wow. And Or we go down and people are scraping their cars in the, in the valley because they're down in the cold air. So, yeah, we've got views up, up across the Pennines into, into Lancashire and then down in, into the valley, into Haworth, and we see the steam train down in the Keeping and Worth Valley Steam Railway, which is the railway, railway children. Gosh, uh, you really railway. do have a lot of literary clout there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And it, actually, that has made a difference in the past, because I think there's been a couple of times, maybe in, I can't remember the years, it's something like the 40s and the 60s when people have been trying to put um, electricity pylons in the valley and part of the reason they've managed to avoid that is the the Bronte connection and the literary connection and they said oh you, there's no way you could do that and so it has actually happened or, or made a difference um, practically not not just the fact that we have a lot of um, artistic people here and people co who come for that connection and also in, in the, the parsonage, uh, the, this is the Bronte parsonage where the, uh, the Brontes were brought up. Um, that is a real artistic hub. And, and each year they have someone who's the artist in, in residence. And we, we just, every year it's someone, you know, brilliant. So, and, and they do attract loads of fantastic speakers and singers and stuff. So the fact that even though the Brontes were 150 years ago, they have still... Uh, attracted so many interesting things and, and big people to this area that, that was, was, there's no way we would have, have them otherwise. We'd have just been some small backwater that no one would be bothered about. That just goes to show how, even though it sounds quite remote um, in, in many ways, it 
it isn't far from uh, some really interesting cultural life. Absolutely, absolutely. And it, and it keeps, um, within 10 minutes, there's probably 20 pubs that wouldn't have kept going apart from, mm-hmm. <laughs> apart from the uh, Bronte <laughs> connection and, and having all the tourists here. And, and you know, within Howarth, there's, well, there's 10 pubs and probably 30 restaurants and just loads of stuff that we wouldn't have no way without the uh, all the tourists. So, so, so I mean, I, no, no one resents them. We we welcome them. So, other than all the pubs, what is it that attracted you, a, a man from Birmingham, to yeah. live in what feels like quite a, a kind of remote well, place? Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, my wife and I both came up uh, to go to university at Leeds at the end of the seventies. I came up from a small village in Warwickshire, and my wife came up from a small village in Gloucestershire. We just wanted a bit of big city life, and we met each other and fell in love and stayed. So that's why we've been here for the last forty years. So, but until we moved up here, we were. basically having a normal suburban life between Leeds and Wakefield and having all the things that, all the big city stuff that you like. But then when our youngest finished university, we thought we'll do the escape to the country thing. So, and we found here and so we, yeah, we spent a couple of years doing it up and it escaped up here. Fantastic. Well, it sounds marvellous. And uh, thank you for sharing the kind of special nature of your home and the place where you're based. Oh, you're very welcome. Lovely to speak to you, Claire. No worries. You are very good at speaking to people, aren't you? Basically, I think we can just about forget me doing this podcast now. I think G9651 (laughs) was just about right. You are much more competent than me, as well as intelligent. Uh, that was a great interview. Really, really, really enjoyed it. Well, thank you. And thank you to Michael. Who you got lined up for us next then, Claire? I feel like I'm just <laughs> taking the back seat in this podcast now. Oh, well, I'll have to look. I'm still I'm still trying to pin down the um, the guy who runs the games cafe up the road from me uh, to talk about uh, board games based on maps. Uh, so look out for that one at some point in the future. Oh, risk. That's what I, I remember when I was about 11. Uh, playing risk with my cousins and they didn't really quite understand it but me trying to conquer europe or south america or something or another that's that's the uh the game of my my youth a bit of risk now we have a new section on our show um what we're trying to do is have people that know what they're talking about on the podcast as opposed to me basically so it's claire and claire's associates basically so trying to trying to ease me (laughs) i don't know what i'm talking about either (laughs) Now, um, this has been in the gestation for quite some time. It's Ben Jacobs, who's a big bearded town planner, and he's got a brain the size of a planet. He knows all about how maps work in the real world. So this is a regular slot where our Ben comes on and talks to us about how mapping informs his work as a town planner. Hello, everybody. My name is Benjamin Jacobs. I'm the host of a history podcast called Wittenberg to Westphalia, The Wars of the Reformation, but that's not why I'm here. By day, I am an urban planner. I work for the state of Rhode Island, and I manage the state's travel demand model, which is a fancy way of saying that I work with maps and mapping data and mapping computer programs. Uh, Royfield has asked me to start doing these 10-minute segments on... uh, 
various things that interest me, and his guidelines were, Ben, be as nerdy as possible. In that spirit, I'm going to be talking today about Geographic Information Systems, uh, abbreviated as GIS, a concept that I owe my career to, because some people still think it's magical, even though it's really easy to do. So, what is GIS? The easiest way to explain it is that it is a mapping software, but that kind of doesn't quite get to it. Uh, a lot of times that makes people think about Google Maps. And while there is a bunch of interesting GIS stuff happening sort of under the hood with Google Maps, uh, with, in terms of what you and the public can do, it's, it's very limited. A better way to explain what GIS is is that it's sort of if you took Microsoft Excel and strapped it onto Google Maps, creating a sort of horrible Frankenstein hybrid, except that then you made it nice and easy to use. That's sort of GIS. Essentially, they're programs that allow the user to take data and then analyze that data in a geographic context, sort of on the fly, in a map. Uh, most systems have a underlying database structure to allow the data to be stored and analyzed. The programs then um, tie that data to geographic information, or that data is already tied to geographic information, and then that's displayed. Then there's different ways that you can analyze the data using inbuilt tools or just by changing the way that the data is symbolized in the program. So making this line yellow and that line green can tell you something when you put it on a map, as any of you in the audience probably know, because, you know, you like maps. Finally, most GIS programs have sort of handy cartographic tools in them that then let you sort of turn that scratchwork thing that you're doing into an actual map with a nice border and a north arrow and all that stuff. People have been doing sort of spatial analysis uh, in various forms throughout a lot of human history. Uh, the best examples start showing up in the 1830s and the 1850s. But, of course, they didn't have computers back then, so it was a fairly laborious process to undertake. The first GIS systems were developed in the early 1960s in Canada, of all places. Uh, and the first geographic information system, in fact, the the origin of the term comes from the first geographic information system, which was developed by the government of Canada by a person named Roger Tomlinson, and it was called the Canada Geographic Information, or CGIS. Of course, as people uh, started using it, they dropped the C when they weren't in Canada anymore. The real kickoff point for modern GIS systems was actually in Harvard in the mid-1960s, um, under a, a person named Howard T. Fisher. Uh, Dr. Fisher worked at the Harvard Graduate School of Design, um, notably the Urban Design Studio, uh, which is still there. Um, but he sort of split off and created a, uh, a subsection of that subsection called the Laboratory for Computer Graphics and Spatial Analysis. They took a lot of tools that had been developed as part of the Manhattan Project and uh, using these huge room-sized uh, mainframes, which they had at the time, uh, you know, there were only a few places that you could work on this kind of thing. Uh, and so they, they had uh, some very rudimentary mapping software. And so they put together that mapping software with some of the stuff that had been done in Canada and some of their own ideas and just started working through a bunch of the 
basic theor- theoretical concepts that still underlie most GIS systems today. Now, most of that stuff's too fancy for me to actually understand. Um, most of us don't get really into the deep stuff. The really important thing is that a bunch of uh, Dr. Fisher's students went on uh, to build other geographic information systems. Among the more notable uh, GIS systems developed at that time was GRASS-GIS, which is an open-source GIS system. If any of you are sort of interested in sticking your toe in the water um, outside of an official context, GRASS is open-source, so it's free. Um, And actually, I've played around with it. It's not too bad. There's a learning curve, especially if you're used to something else. But there's a bunch of YouTube videos, and, you know, I I would actually recommend, um, if you don't have to do anything for school or anything, uh, and you're just looking to learn GIS, start with grass. That way you don't have to unlearn things later. However, the industry standard is an offering by a different company, also founded by students of Dr. Fisher, called the Environmental Systems Research Institute, or ESRI. Uh, of course, the people who founded ESRI, uh, like many at the time in the 70s, were felt stifled by the environment of the Harvard East Coast situation, so they moved out to Silicon Valley. And that is where the Esri Corporation is based today, and their most famous offering is ArcGIS, which is the standard that pretty much everyone in the U.S. uses, except for the Census Bureau for some reason. They use grass. I'm not sure why that is. In any case, one of the most interesting things about this story that, uh, when I learned it, is that these early mainframes took six hours to process any of their maps, and they didn't have visual displays. This was before computer monitors. So when uh, the researchers, what they would do is they'd put together these massive stacks of punch cards, drop them off at the computer lab, where they would be processed for hours, and they'd have to hope that they did everything right and everything worked through properly. And at the end of it, they'd come back six hours later, or whatever, and they'd just get a printout. And the printers, of course, at the time, were basically just giant electric typewriters. They weren't, you know, laser printers or anything. So the maps would be drawn using contour lines that are basically the symbols that you see on your keyboard. The slashes, the eyes, and and, uh, all that stuff. It was all used to print out this giant sheet of paper that showed, like, contour maps based on these symbols. So I thought that was very interesting. Uh, GIS, of course, is hugely important to... Uh, what I do in urban planning, but it's it's important in dozens of fields now. Uh, public health, medical research, uh, epidemiology, that's one of the first ever uses of, um, you know, spatial analysis uh, was, was in public health. But one of the most interesting things for me now is uh, historical GIS projects have become really, really important in understanding things. Because if you think about it, most archaeological finds uh, that are out there are going to be fairly small. One or two coins, a jar, you know, a couple arrowheads, whatever. That stuff doesn't mean too much on an individual level. But if you put it together, it's data. And if you put data into a GIS system, you can learn some really interesting things. One of the most interesting things that I've learned recently on my show uh, about uh, medieval Europe, basically... Uh, is, you know, we don't have many records of what trade routes were like uh, in the early, early Middle Ages after the Empire fell. 
But um, a researcher named uh, Michael McCormick went through and pulled together all these archaeological finds, really small ones, put them into a really early GIS system at a time when it was all command prompt based, so it was like using DOS, uh, and produced these results that showed pretty clearly where some major uh, trade routes were in Eastern Europe at the time, in places where we have almost no records. So that's all fascinating. That's GIS. Uh, and I'm, you know, in future episodes, I'm going to talk more about what I do on a day-to-day basis and, um, and other fun, nerdy things like that. So I'll probably refer back to GIS later, but I think I'll leave you with that for now. Uh, giant maps based on keyboard symbols and, uh, using all these different coin finds to find trade routes in Eastern Europe. Thank you for that, Benjamin Jacobs, and uh, more musings from Ben uh, next month. Uh, now we go to one of our stalwart contributors. It's R. Ken. Here's an audio postcard. This is Ken. I'm at uh, north coordinates 40 degrees 39 minutes 0.844, uh, west coordinates 73 degrees 58 minutes 146 in the ravine at Prospect Park in Brooklyn, New York. This park is the brainchild of Frederick Law Olmsted and Calvert Vox, landscape architects at a time when that term was just coming into use. Everyone remembers Olmsted and forgets Vox, which is unfair, but there is a reason. Olmsted was the artist, the genius of place, as he has been called. Vox knew he needed him when he got the commission for Prospect Park and begged him back from California, where he'd been mining, a, managing a gold mine. He and Vox had already created New York's Central Park, but if that had been the end of it, Olmsted wouldn't have wound up being a landscaped architect. He'd been a farmer, a sailor, a journalist, and an abolitionist author. It was this repeat performance here that settled him into his lifelong career, though he was already in his 40s. Olmsted loved nature. He was an early advocate for preserving Yosemite, but though Prospect Park seems quite natural, it's anything but. Even the old-growth trees he kept were often moved, This ravine looks like something out of the Adirondacks from a few miles from the shore on a barrier island. Olmsted's parks were born of his egalitarian spirit, his belief that all people should have access to such places, even if they lived in great cities. He wanted to transport people who didn't have the time or the means to leave town. And here, as before, across the river in Brooklyn, I mean, excuse me, in Manhattan, and as he would again in parks from Buffalo to Boston and projects as diverse as a cemetery in Oakland to the Biltmore Estate near Asheville, he succeeded brilliantly. His naturalistic simulacra are part of the American landscape. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. We haven't really talked, Claire, have we, about parks yet? No, and there's some really interesting stories and histories of parks. Um, And, of course, Central Park was uh, based on the original park in the Wirral, wasn't it, in the the northwest of England, so, uh, which they do make a lot of fuss about. Mm. Back in the day, your park was to provide... um, literally lungs for the city wasn't it it was to so you got out of all the smog and uh you know the bellowing smoke that came out of the factories and it gave the workers you know an ersatz kind of countryside that they could go and uh take respite from the grime and the grit uh away from the grime and the grit Uh, looking back at the history of, of parks, and I must admit, I, this is not a topic which I know loads about. I'm kind of surprised at really how early um, that the actual planning and ordering of parks actually comes, you know, in the 19th century. You know, I, I kind of just thought this was a, a 20th century thing, but the history of parks is, is, is much longer than than we actually realise. So I think we should actually do an episode all about parks, famous parks around the world. And maybe, dear listener, that's what you can do, is if there's a, a lovely bit of green space close to you, um, why don't you uh, go into mapcorner.space, go on to SpeakPipe, and tell us about that, and then we can put together an episode where we speak to some, some expert about the development of parks. Oh, absolutely. And I know we have a number of... Um contributors from vancouver and you know they have the name of the park is escaping me but they have a fantastic park there um and it'd be nice to hear from people about you know their their local park or their local famous park because you know doesn't have to be famous to be valuable to people Mm. so my my local park have you ever told you i'm from birmingham claire (laughs) once or twice (laughs) <laughs> so my local park in Birmingham when I was growing up was Perry Park in in Perry Bar and um 
exciting things are happening in our park at the moment, or at least the park of my youth anyway. The Commonwealth Games is going to be there in two oh. years' time. So they're extending the Athletic Stadium, which is the Alexander Park Stadium, to host the Commonwealth Games. So uh, exciting things happen in parks, yeah. other than um, little streams and, and little brooks and, and walks and all of that. Anyway, that's me wittering on. Um, I'm trying not to on this episode. And um, now it's time for me to say, Claire, what is our map fact of the month? Okay, to this month's map fact is that uh, the way that Ordnance Survey in the UK have calculated walking times on maps has been the same for over 100 years and is based on the, uh, the speed at which what they quote is a fairly fit Victorian mountaineer could walk uh, in 1892. It was based on the walking speed of a man called William Naismith and um, they haven't updated it in all that time. So um, it, now they are looking to update the way that they calculate walking speeds so that thing, people who are perhaps not as fast as a Victorian fit mountaineer don't get, you know, stuck in mountainous areas after dark and that kind of thing. Um, so it's part of their kind of online service about calculating how long it should take to get around places. Um, they are going to base it on some sort of real-time data from users of the uh, Ordnance Survey app, uh, which just uh, – it's I, I just really love this because it's like, you know, if it ain't broke, why, why fix it? And you think, oh, that's how fast people could walk 100 years ago. People are still people. Well, surely that's how fast people walk. But uh, maybe it just goes to show the difference in the range of people who are getting out into the open air and uh, wanting to recalculate that based on maybe a slightly different demographic uh, for the people who are out there these days compared to uh, in 1892. So mm. well done, Alden Survey. And I suppose now the fact that we all have um, these spies in our in our pockets, in our hands, our phones, yeah. you can have incredibly accurate data as to what the average speed is of someone who's walking because exactly. invariably most people only get phones from the age of, I don't know, 11, 12 upwards. Um, and then the other thing, I, I, you know, just thinking about it off the top of your head, that would have ex almost definitely excluded women back then. Of course, yeah, yeah. So well done, ONS. Uh, now we should go on to listener calls. Uh, start, let's start off with our Jan Mitchell. Now, what did you call this at the top of the top of the show? Musageddon. I thought it would be useful to introduce this by saying people who may or not have listened to last month's episode will just to recap, Jan nearly hit a moose driving in the winter many years ago when she was very young. Uh, but she talked about how she hit the accelerator and I was astounded because I would have hit the brake if I saw a moose up ahead. Here's Jan with more. Hello, Royfield and Claire. This is Jan Mitchell calling back from Vancouver. Um, yes, oh dear. I kind of missed a salient point when I was telling you my story about almost hitting a moose. Um, actually, I did accelerate a little bit, but it's because I needed to swerve. So I turned the wheel away from where I thought the moose was and hit the gas a little bit. <laughs> 
anyway, that's the that's the part I kind of miss telling you. Anyway, there it is. Um, I'm sure that in a few days it's going to be New Year's. So I wish you all a very happy 2020. And uh, thanks for everything. Bye. You know what? I couldn't sleep for the last month for worrying about what the hell um, <laughs> had actually happened in that incident in British Columbia at the dead of winter, Jan. So thank you for calling in and happy 2020 to you also. So from Indeed. Jan, we now go to Richard. Hi, Royfield and Claire. This is Richard Asher. My three-word location is fault, myth, laminated, or more conventionally, 52.67622 degrees north and 0.327622 degrees west. This puts me in South Lincolnshire, England. I'm surprised that no one else has referred to the three-word geo-referencing system I have. in your podcasts. Maybe it should be a topic for a future episode. This is a great podcast, which I only picked up on on before Christmas, but I have now listened to all of them. I want to nominate two additional cartographers to your Hall of Fame, in addition to the ones Mick Ashworth mentioned in your podcast number eight. I think two giants of mapmaking are Captain James Cook and Major General William Roy. Cook was the, a most incredible navigator and hydrographer. His maps of New Zealand were so accurate, considering it was surveyed from a small boat, that they are close a close match to the latest satellite photographs. Roy was one of the founding fathers of the Ordnance Survey. I have a question for you also. I've spent most of my working life poring over large-scale maps and plans so what is the difference between maps and plans, or are they the same? I'm folding my map up now. Um, just before we go on to discuss um, maps and plans, because I know you did a deep wiki uh, search just before we started uh, recording the show, um, where do you stand on your Captain Cooks and your William Roys? Well, I... Th- in terms of, um, in terms of, you know, Captain Cook, in inverted commas, discovered Hawaii, Australia, and uh, New Zealand, and then William Roy also has the accolade of um, his kind of leadership led to the start of the Ordnance Survey, which we've kind of like bigged mm-hmm. up in your fact map. But great white men of old uh, traversing the globe. Where do you sit with all of that? Well, I guess as cartographers, you can't uh, knock it if they are producing good quality stuff. And you could argue that they are people who have uh, are kind of evidence of their the system that bears them. So um, I guess if it hadn't been Captain Cook, it would have been some other old white dude who went off to sail to Australia and Hawaii Um so uh, maybe we see them as uh, products of a system uh, rather than holding them personally responsible for all of that system. But um, I guess it's a mm. reflection of the time. And I think that's why it's really important to think about other ways of thinking about mapping. When you look at particularly places like Hawaii, you know, the, the, the amazingly ingenious ways that um, Pacific Islanders 
created sort of physical maps with rocks and twigs and uh you know that were meaningful to them uh rather than sort of traditional paper cartography um those things ought to have equal value uh but are perhaps not always seen as um so valid over time yeah i i couldn't agree more and i and i think because we live in a western centric dominated world in terms of its kind of cultural history we do gloss over if not just clean forget that other bits of the globe um were famed for their navigators too and uh, polynesia as you've just said is is absolutely ripe and apt for that you know you think about all those little pebbles in the pacific ocean and people's for a millennia went from island to island and that isn't part of our western narrative and when you realize that was it new zealand was only discovered what in the 14th century discovered by uh, native polynesians you know it really shows you that up until relatively recently uh, polynesian people were going from island to island mm-hmm. fiji samoa etc etc and then um you know colonizing them and they had a very ingenious way of uh of navigating also the the chinese and there is um a book which has been somewhat massively uh debunked 1429 or 1428 i'm doing this off the top of my head it's one of those two years but it's it uh, chronicles the uh, the Chinese emperor at the time sending out these great galleons to go throughout the world, and these galleons definitely got to the Cape uh, to to the Cape of Good Hope in South Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, the the author of the book and this book was a real cool celebre about I don't know eighteen years ago or so maybe about twenty years ago. Gavin Mendes that was his name. He basically said that they that these Chinese ships went all the way to the New World. Um, the Pacific coast, the Atlantic coast, etc., etc., and there is no real uh, there's scant evidence of that, if any at all. But he pulled these fragmentary bits of evidence. But the fact of the matter is, the Chinese were famed navigators and went all throughout um, the Indian Ocean, uh, etc. And, and basically, they just turned back because they just said, "Well, there's nothing worth discovering. <laughs> Everyone else is a barbarian." So I just like to <laughs> turn around and went back. And then, of course, uh, the Arabs were famous seafarers as and well. And great mathematicians, which um, helps. And I, but absolutely, absolutely. That's where we get our numbers from and everything yep. was the, the good old Arabs. Um, I suppose that we do, you know, we can be politically correct. And, and obviously, uh, off the back of people like Columbus did come a whole load of death and destruction, disease, pestilence, subjecting people to horrors and uh, the start of the international slave trade. Uh, And so there's good reason for native peoples um, in the Americas to be um, anti all of that. But you have to, um, I think you're right, you look at what they did individually and this is like literally launching a rocket to the unknown that's the equivalent mm-hmm. today. Like you didn't know what you were going to discover. It literally is like the Star Trek Enterprise in that regard. To boldly go where no man has gone before. And to make contact to, with, with new civilizations. And the very fact that Roy 
Roy's maps of New Zealand, and these were done over 200 years ago, are that accurate that it's literally like looking at a satellite picture today. Um, shows you the utter skill yeah. of these early navigators. And that's before you think about their bravery and they didn't know what they were going to encounter. And it always surprises me when you see the ships of old explorers, actually how small they are as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. They were tiny things and they went away for years at a time. You know, and half the crew never came back. They died of scurvy or some terrible disease and were killed by indigenous peoples game, being pissed off with them, as what happened to uh, to Captain Cook, you know. But these ships then limped back years later. But yeah, so I think we have to uh, tip our hats to how brave these explorers were, but then also to recognise uh, the great destruction then that followed in their wake. Um, yeah. So I've witted on for a bit now. So I'm going to pick up map and a plan so um and i think actually we sort of refer to it in a sense by talking about the ancient Polynesian or the polynesian maps that are made out of mm-hmm. that kind of physical things made out of uh, stones and and twigs and, and twine and so on um and that a map can be symbolic and can indeed be of imaginary places as we know because we had a whole episode about imaginary maps um mm-hmm. whereas a plan is a more technical kind of scale drawing so there are many many maps are also plans in the sense that they are to scale and present information that can you know seen from the sort of bird's eye view um but there are different ways of doing maps which are not just doing that uh, plus plans can also be a very specific small scale issues like a, a specific building rather than an entire territory uh, and, and maps are kind of better for that larger scale um but there are there's certainly a crossover areas between maps and plans um if it's to scale and technical and includes sort of you know specific details that are relevant to the subject in hand it might be either a map or a plan or both uh, Claire, I've truly learnt something today on this Me podcast. Too. Well done. Well done, you. All Thanks, right. Richard, last... for asking the question. Yeah, brilliant question. Uh, last call this week, and this is Guy. Hello, Map Corner. This is Guy. I've made my living for 43 years using maps, but barely made one. However, I found this in my mother's old papers and posted it for you on Facebook. In 1966, age 10... I made a map of the village where I grew up, tiny Wyston, population less than 50, mostly working on the estate or retired. At the centre is Wyston Hall, home of General Laycock of World War II Commando fame. We <laughs> set up our stumps on the edge of the cricket field, south of the hall, the old general might come out and join our game. From the cricket pavilion, we take a path past the disused old ice house, hidden in the woods, to the Clayworth Road. Turning back from the Clayworth Road, for it is not a school day, we follow the towpath of the canal to the works yard, whose interesting buildings have lax security, easily penetrated by small boys. This is also where we keep our three-boy canoe. Launching our canoe, we navigate further north to the rundown tropical gardens, jungle with real bamboo and a jungle swamp. Further on is the estate vegetable gardens, a riskier proposition because of the chance of getting caught, and because Peter Rabbit was not really about rabbits. 
Walking south, we see on the right the race course, on the left the racing stables, whose haylofts, along with those of the farms, are also our playground. Turning right in front of the hall, we bypass the rose gardens, because the lord of the manor allows us free use of the unfenced open-air swimming pool, where I teach myself to swim, and it's the first place I rescue someone from drowning. We dry off and run across the field, climb the gate by the home farm lane, and see our house, the dairy cottage, at the top of the hill. The edge of the map shows directions to Massey Priory, Ruins, Blakeo Hill, Saxon Tumulus, Clayworth, Cuckoo Hill, Windmill, and Drake Hall's Canal Tunnel. Fifty-three years later, all the buildings are still there, though you will not find a race course or swimming pool. Of course, I do not need this map to be able to show you all these places, or which bushes the guinea fowl will lay their eggs beneath, or the hollow tree, or the best climbing trees, or the sweet chestnut trees, or the best sledging hills, or where the fox is dead. All these details are etched in my heart. Now I must fold up my map before it becomes... Oh. Well, Guy, you packed a lot in there. He did, he did, and uh, but just ran out of time. I reckon another two seconds, and we would have got him completely folding up his map. I, I reckon he's still mid-fold. Um, <laughs> you grew up in the countryside, didn't you, Claire? No, I didn't, but my dad did uh, in the village where I live now, and there's a lot about that call that, um, that you know, I, I can hear the, some of the tales that my dad would tell. He, also, he and his brother had a canoe that they used to hold, uh, hide under some trees down by the river. We have a river rather than the canal here. Um, that they used to take the uh, the trees out. They'd go off, you know, scrumping out of gardens and orchards. Um, they learned to swim in the open air also, but in the river rather than the swimming pool. There was nothing so fancy in those days. And um, and he worked on farms from when he was about eleven. So uh, you know that that this sort of very quintessential. English. I just make a note as we went through the the call. You know, there's the kind of the big house on the estate and the cricket on the village green and the canoe and the canal and the vegetable gardens and the hayloft and the dairy cottage and the kind of you know, climbing trees and the hills to sledge down. This is very much like if you were doing a kind of bingo for a kind of stereotypical English village life you you'd manage to tick off a fair amount from that one two minute call so thanks guy a wonderful evocative call and it kind of reminded me of all the maps which I drew were they plans maps that <laughs> I used to draw of my parents back garden uh, when I was between I don't know about between the age reserve uh, six and about 12 or so and I gave bits of the lawn were, were, were different places with different names and stuff and I used to have war and the ants used to have wars and all this kind of crazy things that you do when you're when you're a little kid in short trousers you know staring at uh staring at slugs and uh trying to make, make sense out of uh, the world that you know and then how it kind of fits in to the wider world so um thank you um for that wonderful call now Claire um what has been happening in the socials let's start with twitter i'm gonna warn you now that there's a a, a somewhat melancholy tone to some of the social media uh for this month um so uh but i'll start on a higher point which is um aura fanny pants sent us a uh a, a map that was around celebrating some historic um Orcadian, which I love that word, Orcadian, uh, i.e. Uh, attributing to the Orkney Islands in uh, the north of Scotland. Uh, the Orcadian cartographer Murdoch Mackenzie, which is a wonderfully Scottish name as well. Um, some beautiful um, historic maps of, of those far-flung 
parts of the north of the UK. Um, so that was lovely. But some of the other things that have come through in terms of uh, the hashtag map corner um, has been looking at the uh, Charles Booth mapping of poverty in uh, 19th century London, which I think we mentioned at our very first um, mm-hmm. uh, episode, but also um, a, a really sad map around the reported deaths of refugees and asylum seekers across the Mediterranean over the last few years. So there's some, some serious content there in terms of the kinds of maps that have come through. Uh but, uh, yes, it might, well, we just had Blue Monday, which is apparently the most miserable day of the year, isn't it? So uh, maybe that's uh, – maybe things will look up from here on in. But, uh, yeah, considering uh, – and continuing some of that theme, some of the content on our Facebook group has also been um, quite serious uh, this month. So including a number of uh, maps that have been shared around the terrible Australian wildfires – and I think it's been really interesting to see how those maps have really helped people to contextualise, because Australia is a very big place. So, how, you know, putting maps up that just shows how big the area is that is on fire in Australia to give people a sense of the scale in relation to their own part of the world, um, I think is really important, although obviously it doesn't always convey exactly what it is that people are dealing with. Um, but uh, on the brighter side, uh, our most commented Facebook uh, post was uh, an entirely wonderful, frivolous map, uh, which was, uh, a, I don't even know who thought this was a great idea to map this data, but it's um, the distance between a diocesan cathedral and the nearest Nando's restaurant <laughs> in Britain. <laughs> So how far would a bishop have to travel uh, to get a Nando's in the UK? Do they have Nando's around the world? I don't even know if they do. No, um, it's a very British thing. Is it? That's bizarre because it's supposed to be Portuguese, right? So, well, it is Portuguese, but the chain, the chain itself is a, is a British right. phenomenon. Uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, for, for overseas listeners, it's uh, Portuguese piri-piri chicken uh, uh, restaurant and uh, much loved by uh, young people, so I'm told. Um, and um, it, it just seems a completely incongruous thing to have mapped. Um, but it did spark a bit of a conversation which forced me to look up uh, what the uh, cathedral situation was in the Diocese of Bradford. Uh, it turns out they've got three cathedrals, I think, there. Um, so it's, uh, it's a complicated picture because they have more than one cathedral in their, dioce- in their diocese. Um, but, uh, yeah, so it's, it's it's good fun to think about these things that people just choose to map that don't really make a lot of sense. Uh, and so the other thing that I would uh, put a shout out for in the uh, Facebook in this last month has been also uh, from Guy Smith around um, the the Vancouver City Council, I guess, sharing mm-hmm. maps of, of things that are happening live. So you can see when it's snowing what the snowplow routes are and those kind of things. And I think increasingly as we move to a more smart city approach, people will be able to engage much more in real time with um, not just services in their area. Um, you know, I'm thinking of things like, you know, uh, 
people who have bicycle hire things where you can look up where the bicycle is and that kind of stuff but actually um kind of municipal information as well and i think we are getting to a point soon particularly once 5g rolls out that you know more and more places you'll be able to interact a, a very spatial way with the town that you live in which will be really exciting mm. So um, I, I think we should just remind people that if they do want to post things um, onto the uh, Map Corner hashtag, it's hashtag Map Corner on Twitter. And yep. of course, um, if you're a Facebook person, simply go onto Facebook and type in Map Corner and you'll find us there, find our group there, and you can kind of post away. Post Indeed, away. it's a very friendly bunch of people. And just before we go, um, remember there is uh, mapcorner.space, hit speak pipe so you can record uh, a message which we can then play out on the show. But also, if you'd like to send us an email, you go on to mapcorner.space, hit the contact us tab, and then you can write us a message and contact us that way. Indeed. It's always nice to hear from people. So, Claire, I think that was another barnstorming episode, and one which I was very happy to be the back... Well, it wasn't the backseat driver, a passenger, a passenger in a Claire <laughs> Asprey car, because um, this, this show, I fundamentally, was, was, was about you, wasn't it? From, from the review that came in uh, through to your uh, great interview and, uh, and your wonderful insights all around. So I doffed my cap, and um, can I now fold away my map? You certainly can. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.